This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome to Doing Translational Research, um, which we run through the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. My name is Chris Wildman. I'm your host and the director of the center. Um, I'm here today with Shannon Gleason. Shannon's an associate professor of labor relations, law, and history uh, here at Cornell University in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. You're also the person, first person from ILR that I think I've talked to since I took over the podcast, so I'm excited about that. Um, she was previously on the faculty of the Latin American and Latino Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, and I know that she has a joint PhD in sociology and demography from the University of California, Berkeley, or I at least know that she's a demographer, even if it's not a joint degree. Um, she has already written, um, a, a huge number of books and articles. Um, one of the more recent ones is Precarious Claims, The Promise and Failure of Workplace Protections in the United States. Um, and the thing that I guess I associate you with most is studying sort of immigrant health um, and especially sort of precarious workers health when folks are immigrants. So having that as the incredibly naive soundbite that I associate yeah. with you, could you just tell me a little bit more about either things you're working on now that you're excited about or what sort of your main research interests are more yeah. broadly? Sure. So thanks for having me. Um, a good part of my work after, during and after my dissertation was focused on occupational health. And so how individuals of various immigration statuses get access to some of the basic protections that we have under the Occupational Safety and Health Act and how we get access to workers' comp. So I have written um, some in that area. But um, I think that more generally one of the things that I've been interested in is the overlap between two primary areas of policy, immigration and labor, and more, more specifically how the state generates forms of precarity and inequities at the workplace and the role that immigration policy plays. And so we can think of this as kind of overlapping policy arenas. We have one body of law that says that workers are afforded certain basic rights, and then we have another area of law that says that certain workers um, are at risk for detention and deportation. And so I've been really interested in the clash of those policy arenas and how that plays out for a number of different protections, occupational health included, but also things ranging from sexual harassment, um, wage theft, et cetera. Um, in addition to understanding how individual workers navigate those policies and the rights that they have, I've also been interested in how civil society, um, including labor unions, but other, uh, what I kind of think of as institutional intermediaries, advocates, help promote immigrant workers' rights, and what are the challenges that they face in doing so. So that's kind of the broader context of the work that I've been doing. Cool. Um, I feel like I know more now, so that's good. Yeah. Um, I, I guess... There are sort of three, I guess the way I would see it, there are kind of three different levels of folks that you could engage with um, in ways that we would think about translational. And so I guess, I mean, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about all three of those. One would be sort of community organizations that are involved in occupational health or, um, or engaged with policies in some way, whether they, it could be immigration policy, it could be whatever. One would be sort of the constituents, constituents that those groups are 
um, trying to represent and support. And then the other group would be sort of lawmakers or sort of agents of the state more mm-hmm. broadly, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so I, it would just be interesting to hear a little bit about sort of what some of the challenges working with each of those different types of groups have mm-hmm. been and also maybe something that's been surprising in a positive way um, or in a negative way. Sure. So, yeah, I, I think of kind of these realms of immigration and labor part and, and health included, um, as, as you said, kind of being dominated by a few different actors, either because of their um, position related to the issue or because of their position um, in, in terms of the structure that they're inhabiting. So workers, I think it was kind of a micro-level analysis. Civil society, I think of as kind of a meso-level analysis in institutions. And then bureaucrats are a big mixture of both. On the one hand, they inhabit the state, right? They're the embodiment of the state. But the state is really composed of a number of different, what we think call like street-level bureaucrats, all the way up to big elite policymakers. Um, and in my work through a number of different things, I've um, mainly interviewed but also surveyed constituents from each of those arenas. So in the book that you mentioned, I surveyed um, a a sample of low-wage workers in the San Francisco Bay Area um, to get a sense of what their experience had been with their claim. This is a a process of actually coming forward and making claims on their rights, what their experience with the legal process was. And then I went back through and did follow-up interviews. And we're doing the same um, type of interviews with recipients of DACA, which is another project that I've been focusing on, um, and uh, also immigrant workers who have something called temporary protected status. At the level of civil society, I've done also primarily interviews either in terms of legal advocates for the low-wage work arena, um, attorneys, including workers' comp attorneys, who have been going through the, the process of trying to counsel people, um, organizations that are trying to implement policies um, at the local level. So for the DACA project, we interviewed um, over 200, myself and my uh, colleague and co-author, Elsa DeGraw, we interviewed over 200 different organizations. And for another project that I'm doing on transnational advocacy, we also looked at civil society organizations ranging from legal aid organization, immigrant rights groups, worker centers, and labor unions. And so um, at the level of the state, I spent some time uh, not only looking at the archives of the state, so this is a question of like, how do you know how the state functions? One is to look at their formal policies, um, but the other is to talk to the actual, you said, agents that whose job it is to implement those policies. And so um, I interviewed people from ranging from like the California Labor Commissioner in in uh in California who are in charge of implementing the California Labor Code. Um, and I've also, and in, we've interviewed different people from across New York, um, Houston, and the San Francisco Bay Area, where we're looking at how DACA has been implemented to see how agencies whose primary charge maybe has nothing to do with immigration are still impacted by those laws, which included some um, health-related organizations, education organizations. And so how to understand how they're interpreting federal policies at the top through state and then local lenses. Um, so that I've, in my research, kind of talked with each of those. And I think one of the surprising thing um, that has emerged is that you often think that you can't get people to necessarily be honest with you about certain things, right? So how do you get a, a bureaucrat to talk about, for example, certain things that they might be closed-lipped about? And I think that in, I think we, give, we don't give people credit enough. I think they're pretty honest about the challenges that they, that they face. Um, and so that I found 
really refreshing. I think some of the harder people that I've had to, to contact are people who are in advocacy or positions, partly because I think there's a sense of research fatigue. Advocacy organizations, um, especially in big immigrant hubs uh, like New York City, um, San Francisco Bay are getting hit up all the time um, for very well-meaning research sometimes, but they have limited resources and are rightly so very skeptical of the um, the aims of researchers, not all of which is necessarily translational or not translational in the way that, that seems meaningful to them and sometimes even can be very harmful. And so I think that uh, you assume that people are going to be willing to talk to you, but for may have very good reasons not to. And then... Um, at the, the level of individual migrants, it's been also very surprising to me that they would take time to talk to me. I wouldn't talk to me <laughs> if I'm in a precarious position, have limited time trying sure. to take care of a family. But I think people want their story to be told. And um, they've been, uh, you know, my work cannot happen without the, the individual workers who I've talked to. And they've been really generous given their own constraints in their everyday life. Great. So I have two totally different follow-up questions to what you just said. So the the first is whether you could talk a little bit about how you've been able to gain access to these, you know, very vulnerable populations. Um, and then the second thing, which maybe has to do more with the community organizations, but I'd be curious to hear more broadly, is sort of how people have responded to your research that they've that they've participated in. So how they've responded to kind of the findings or your interpretation mm-hmm. of things. Sure. Um, so I think recruiting is always something that we as researchers tend to est- underestimate just the time and hard cash money it requires, um, both because it takes our time, which is, is costly, but also just the time of organizations. And so I think when I'm talking about whether it's vulnerable populations or other community organizations, we know this as sociologists, but social capital and social networks matter. And so kind of budgeting into the research process time to get to know these communities and or time to get to know people who can help you navigate those communities have been really important. So just to give an example, um, the current research we're doing right now on TPS, the Temporary Protected Status um, Program, has um, been reliant and could not have happened without the help of three really wonderful RAs that we're working with, apart from Ithaca being this kind of centrally isolated place where it's really hard to do research in, um, in, in major urban centers. This work is primarily with Haitian and Central American immigrant communities in New York City and the surrounding region. And that was a process of having to look for and vet research assistants who have their own expertise and their own social networks in that arena. So we have a woman by the name of um, Alicia Ganas, who's working on Long Island with us, another anthropologist, Darlene Dubuisson, who's in um, New York City, primarily Brooklyn, and then another colleague, who is Patricia Campos Medina, who's working with us in the New Jersey region. And so finding personnel who are well-connected and who have kind of roots in these communities is important. And we as researchers kind of acknowledging what we can and can't do either for practical or other purposes and our own positionality, right? Um, I speak Spanish, um, but I'm not from Long Island, nor am I Central American. So that changes kind of the types of, of, of research that would be done, that one can do. Um, the other thing is working with community organizations is, is very um, time intensive. And so in, in these different communities, there are gatekeepers that you need to kind of convince um, of, your, of your purposes. And those are the people that um, community these community groups or the community leaders are who many of the um, 
individuals we interviewed are looking for to kind of give us a thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, they're making decisions for themselves, but it, it helps for them to know that so-and-so said that this is, um, you know, something that they can trust. And um, especially in the current political environment, it's actually become increasingly difficult for us to do this work. And so we are a little bit at a crossroads in terms of how, how much more time we can um, continue to dedicate to some of this work, given that people are, are very scared to speak. Um, even those who have legal status. Uh, working with community organizations is a lot of patience and also with low-wage workers themselves because they being flexible and being able to reschedule. But community organizations also, um, they don't have, you know, a staff member dedicated to public relations or dealing with, you know, academics in general. And so finding people, meeting them at the time, doing stuff over the, at the time that they're available, doing stuff over the phone, um, uh, convincing them also of our intentions, I think can be, can be difficult. And also I find being honest with them. I think the project of translational research is one that assumes that our work is going to be helpful to communities, but in some cases it's not. So being sure. clear with community groups, what the purpose of our extractive work is and what do you need to do as an exchange to make that worth their time. And I think most, um, community groups appreciate that kind of honesty and so not over promising what what you can do um community uh, with uh, state bureaucrats it's a whole nother layer um having to go through clearance making sure that people's bosses are okay with them talking to us or talking to folks off the record um uh submitting foias things like that which i know you're familiar with and so i think just not the kind of orienting yourself to whatever um group you're talking to there might be a whole different ball game associated with it. And that's a learning curve that um, takes a little listening. And so kind of talking with people before you jump into a community, getting the lay of the land, especially, you know, if other people have already done research in that area, um, knowing, um, you know, what people have already been asked to do so that you're going in with appreciation for what they've already contributed. They don't know the difference between this research team and that research team. Sure. It probably seems very similar. Okay. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that all makes... That makes sense. I So I have, like, more of just, like, a basic science kind of question because yeah. you sort of alluded to this a little bit. So, I mean, I, I know you do mixed methods <laughs> research, but as someone who does partially qualitative research, do you, do you have advice for new faculty members um, anywhere that's a bit isolated who are trying to do sort of qualitative research? So, like, how do you start the first new field work mm -hmm. as a faculty member who, you know, could be in central New York trying to do research in California or in New York yeah. City or who could be in Michigan trying to do research in Texas. Like, mm -hmm. how, what advice would you have? Because it sounds like you've thought about this pretty carefully. Yeah. And I would say in addition to that, you know, being in central New York and contemplating doing work in central New York in and of itself. Um, so most of my work has taken place in major urban centers like um, San Francisco Bay Area and the Houston area, and then more recently in New York City. And so um, when I moved to Ithaca, I had to practically wrap up some of that work. And we were in the middle of an NSF project and kind of create a schedule that would allow me to continue doing work. When I had started that NSF project, we had um, an idea of how my co-author would do work in the East Coast. I was going to do work in... Um, the West Coast, and we were going to both um, finish up the Houston stuff. That kind of fell apart. And so finding 
I think the resources and if it, you are at the beginning of a faculty position and moving to a place like Ithaca has um, opportunities for you to build in what those resources require for you to continue that work, um, kind of being very clear about that. Um, time is obviously really important, um, whether that's during the semester or in the, in the weekends. Um, I think that in some ways, having these time-delimited trips that you take to do this work um, helps you be more productive. I think <laughs> I lived um, about an hour, and a, hour, hour and a half away from where I was doing a lot of my interviews before, and it was just constant driving over the hill and back and over the hill and back, right? And so in this way, I in some ways had to become more organized and say, I have this 10-day window um, it may be less flexible, but it meant that I was, you know, conducting two dozen interviews, perhaps, you know, in, in those 10 days. And so, um, and more flexible in terms of the modes of data collection. So phone interviews are not practical for all sorts of interviews, but in fact can be better for certain types of people who that's the only way you're going to get on the phone. And then I would also just say realistic. There's just certain kinds of research that I can't do here. Mm. And um, being in Ithaca has made me had to have to reevaluate that. Um, so I'll, I'll say something about being in, in a new place, not even just central New York, but wherever you are and trying to start a new project. Um, I was not only unfamiliar with being in the middle of nowhere, Ithaca, but also just New York state policy. I spent a lot of time thinking about California policy in New York. is just a different ballgame. Sure. And so I think giving yourself some time. Um, I do hope to do some field work in central New York. I'm doing some work in New York City now. Um, and that's just taken some time of um, to listen and to talk with colleagues who are already doing that work, some of those being extension colleagues here, um, and asking people um, for opportunities to kind of soak and poke with them, um, volunteering in the Cornell Farm Worker Law Clinic to do translation work or getting involved in local community organizations to kind of de- um, naturalize some of the assumptions I'd already built up being in an immigrant community in another place, right? Both in terms of who are those immigrants, what are the policies that affect them, et cetera. This is a very different place. So building in that time um, that may seem unproductive, right? In other words, you're not doing the field work, but sure. you're building the relationships and um, kind of reprogramming yourself for the particular field site. Cool. Okay. That will be very helpful to people, I yeah. think. Because um, that's always struck me as like, you know, I do quantitative stuff mm -hmm. and like, you know, the survey of inmates in state and federal correctional facilities, it just moves with you when yeah. you move. But, you know, your field site is a more sure. challenging thing. Um, but even then, like you may or may not, depending on the type of data that you're looking at, have access to an RDC or the RAs or yes. the servers, yes. you know, or their stat staff. And so it's a little bit of adjustment, adjustment even there, I think. Yeah. I mean, I certainly complain bitterly whenever I move as though it's a serious adjustment for yeah. me too, but yeah, no, that's, that's right. Um, so, so two kind of big picture questions in terms of closing. So, um, first, what do you think are, or what are the kind of two core findings that you would like people to take away from this about your research? We've really focused on kind of method and mm -hmm. and doing translational qualitative research. Um, so it would be interesting to get sort of take-home messages. And then a second thing is sort of how you or, – or what you might change, especially in the policy domain, based on what you've learned. Sure. Um, I think 
Uh, one kind of process finding that I've, I've, I kind of take with me regardless of what the particular um, policy is, I mean, I've looked at a number of different immigration and, and labor and employment policies, is to pay as much attention to the process of policy making as we do to the process of policy implementation. Hmm. And I think that's something that political sociologists, I think, are well attuned to. But I think in the broader political debate, we spend a lot of time kind of debating what policies are going to emerge. And then the interest, both from researchers and policymakers, sometimes wanes once we get to that point. So that's kind of one theme of my work is trying to understand how policies are implemented, not just enacted, um, and how that happens um, in a federalist system where you have federal, state, and local um, jurisdictions overlapping. Um, I also think that I've been really interested in the role of of civil society and other kind of gatekeepers and brokers in helping people access their rights and benefits that are in place. And so top down, how do, how do those policies get implemented? But then bottom, bottom up, really interested in how do people learn about their rights? Um, one of the big things that um, I found early on in my research was we tend to talk a lot about the major barrier facing low-wage workers and low-wage immigrant workers in particular. We assume is that they don't, they don't know about their rights, that it's really the policy prescription for that is we need to educate them so that they can learn about their rights. But in fact, many of the people I talked to, they, they were more attuned to their rights than I even was. They knew what their, um, their manual said. They knew what state law said. It wasn't really a matter of education. It's that they were balancing a number of different competing um, interest. On the one hand, they weren't getting their breaks or they were working in dangerous conditions. On the other hand, um, even in a relatively um, pro-immigrant context like the Bay Area, felt very attuned to the, the federal um, immigration context, even under Obama, right? And so um, not assuming that information is, is the key. And so kind of that's been a bulk of my work. I think the one real world change, as you put it, that um, I've come away with and I don't think it's a panacea, but I do think that part of the policy solution, even though that may be, may we may think of this as kind of a far off one, is um, that what would a world look like with open borders? What do we do if you take away that national framework of thinking about um, human um, well-being? And I think that you know people brush that off as politically infeasible and all the rest. And there's different constituents who would want open borders for different reasons. I think. Um, corporate America would want it for different reasons than, say, um, uh, labor unions, right? But um, I think that should be part of the conversation. Um, and so what would kind of easing those restrictions look like? Um, because um, there's a kind of a lot of mis human misery attached to the, the current apparatus that's also tied in with and the work on incarceration that you do. And so um, I think that should be part of the policy conversation. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. It was fun. Okay. Thanks. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu. Thank you.